Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. We don't know exactly what happened on December 4th, 1980. For 37 years, the murder of Saxonburg Police Chief Gregory Adams was shrouded in mystery. But what we didn't realize until this investigation really unfolded in the last few weeks is the hero that Chief Adams actually was because he really fought for his life that day. It's long been known that Adams and Webb struggled during a traffic stop, with Webb hitting Adams several times over the head with a blunt object. But while it was thought that Adams may have shot Webb, now it's been determined that Adams broke Webb's leg and severely ripped his lip. Reporting downtown, Andy Sheehan, KDK TV News. The home is owned by Lillian Webb, who is the ex-wife of Donald Eugene Webb, a New England mob associate who has been missing since 1980 after he was suspected of gunning down a police chief in the small town of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. Now a spokesperson for the Boston office of the FBI confirms a court-authorized search warrant is connected to this long-running Webb case. Now coming up new at 6 o'clock, neighbors tell us this isn't the only activity they've seen here in recent months. With the Target 12 investigators, Tim White, Eyewitness News. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's episode, I have a special guest, and that is one Maureen Boyle, true crime author. And we are here to discuss... Her new book about the murder of a young police chief, 31-year-old Gregory Adams, from December 4th, 1980. And it's a really great interview. If you've heard her interview with me before about the New Bedford Highway killings, uh, she's very knowledgeable. She spent 25 years covering crime in the the New England area, and she is very knowledgeable on the subject matter. So... Definitely a great episode this week, and just wanted to say thanks to Brian F. from Cleveland for helping out with uh, the show fund this week, as well as Tony C. So, appreciate you guys for uh, pitching in and keeping these uh, shows on the air. And again, if you want to donate, you can click on the donate button on the show notes in wherever you get your podcasts. So, again, this is an episode about the murder of Gregory Adams that went unsolved for a significant amount of time. And here to discuss the case is Maureen Boyle. And since she is the number one resource on this subject matter, I am going to turn over the show to our conversation about who killed Gregory Adams. I am very lucky to be joined this week with author Maureen Boyle, who is the author of Shallow Graves, and she has been a previous guest on the show to discuss the New Bedford Highway killings. Welcome back, Maureen. Thank you for having me. I love being on your show. All of your shows are terrific. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you on. And, you know, in regards to the shallow graves, any updates on the New Bedford case? I know that one's like kind of cold, but. Well, it's, and it, but it's also very near and dear to my heart. 
uh, just as some cases are really you feel very strongly about. The a district attorney's office, they now have a cold case squad, and they have been going through all of the files again. Um, and a lot of people have come forward, uh, some with very good information or so-so information. Um, obviously, it's not really good information because a killer hasn't been identified. But people are you know, slowly coming forward, uh, remembering different things or uh, letting police know, well, uh, there may be this person whom they always suspected could be involved and they feel a little bit more comfortable coming forward. At this point, though, uh, nothing really has uh, worked out. Yeah, that's unfortunate because, yeah. I mean, how many victims, again, were involved in that case? There was uh, 11 women went missing between March of 88 and September of 88, uh, and nine of them were, have been found. Two are still missing. Um, a lot of people uh, think that the case went on much longer because the bodies were found uh, into 1989. But it was a very short period of time where the, uh, the 11 drug-addicted women went missing, uh, believed roughly in March of 88. And then they have a firm uh, close date in uh, the uh, in September of 88. Yeah, it was a, uh, must have been quite a active um spree i mean that's just it's very unusual i mean i i agree with you very very unusual especially for uh this area and while all of the women uh like a short recap all the women were found along uh highways circling new bedford new bedford is a fish a very well-known historic fishing port in massachusetts and at that time in 1988 it was you know fairly quiet uh rural around new bedford um, and they were found along the highways in the communities circling New Bedford, but not in New Bedford, even though all the women were believed to have gone missing in New Bedford. Now, that could have been a tactic on the killer's part, you know, mixing up jurisdictions as yeah. as profilers say they'd like, like to do at some yeah. point in time. So, But it's, uh, the way that the highway system works, imagine almost like a, uh, a cross, but it wasn't quite a cross. But you had New Bedford in the center and a highway going north and then a highway uh, crossing through New Bedford. And that's where the, the women were found. Wow. Yeah, that's wild that nobody has been caught. I mean, that you would think that somebody w- who would have been close to the person involved with the killings would have noticed some sort of change in their personality because that is just unusual behavior i mean need needless to say it's unusual behavior yeah but it's it's extreme to the extreme i mean it's like when bundy was at his last rope you know and he yeah. just was you know raging kind of like just yeah rage killings i guess it just seems, sort of sounds like and uh we're not actually here to talk about that case today as much as it's near and dear to your heart we hope that <laughs> people will come close come you know Come forward and do, come yeah. forward and you know bring closure to some of these cases. But we are here to talk about your new book. And what is your new book? Uh, it's called "The Ghost: uh, The Murder of uh, Police Chief uh, Greg Adams in the Hunt for His Killer." Uh, it details the 
murder of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, police chief Gregory Adams in December of 1980, uh, and the decades-long hunt by uh, Pennsylvania State Police, Massachusetts State Police, and most importantly by the FBI in uh, trying to find the man that they identified who had killed the chief. Um, it is a, a fascinating story. Um, I first came across it in um, right after Shallow Graves came out. I was thinking of doing another book, and uh, this case finally came to a close. And I, um, I just started doing some, some research on it. I uh, spoke with a, uh, someone that I uh, knew at another paper uh, who was very familiar with uh, Fall River, which is a city ne- next to it, and sort of picked his brain a bit about uh, Fall River and criminals in Fall River. And then I went down to Saxonburg uh, in 2018 and talked to people there about the chief. Uh, now, Saxonburg is a lovely, lovely town uh, in western Pennsylvania. It is about an hour from Pittsburgh. It, people call it Mayberry, USA, and it really does fit the TV show. Uh, you can walk down Main Street and everyone knows each other. They have uh, parades all the time. They have Dinners on May, shut down Main Street and have dinners. Uh, it's just a very homey, very family oriented uh, community, very small, very tight. And the people, in fact, Saxonburg never forgot um, Greg Adams and always kept hope that he would be the killer would be found. And it was just just so encouraging to see a town like that where people really were good and it was just really very very nice it was just a a lovely lovely place to to be yeah you know from what i read about saxonburg it's definitely a very small town um you know gregory adams was very young to be a police chief yeah I mean, I mean, I would assume that has to do with the fact that the town's very small. Yeah. But 31, I believe he was. And that's pretty, that, you know, right, rose the ranks pretty quickly. Yes. Well, there, there weren't that many people on the police department. Uh, there was only, uh, he was, at that time, when he started, he was, I think, one of two or one of three. And uh, when he died, um, he there was only two police officers, full time police officers. It's one of those communities where they do, you know, really rely on part timers or volunteers. Um, and he was also uh, worked with the fire department because maybe they had a volunteer fire department. Yeah, and that's what you do in small towns. Like, yeah. in as far as from what I've researched and you know, people I've talked to, you know, you kind of you're a man of many hats in yeah. in a town like that. And, uh, and when did this, uh, so, so bring me back to, bring me back to the case. It, um, in December of 1980, beginning of December, uh, the police chief had pulled over a vehicle, uh, just a couple of blocks away from the police department in downtown. Uh, he 
the, pulled the car into a parking lot of a hardware store. It was it had snowed before, so there's snow on the ground. And no one knows exactly why he pulled the car over. Um, but obviously, probably because it was considered suspicious, because everyone knows everyone in Saxonburg, and he'd never seen this car before. So he pulls the car over, and the next thing anyone knows about is a young boy who lived near the a hardware store heard what sounded like a clanging sound, a banging sound, and then he heard someone calling, help me, help me. And he told his mom and they looked out the window and they went outside and they found the chief um, mortally wounded. And it went from there. He died at the hospital. They made made it to the hospital in record time. But everyone just converged on the the area and, and also fanned out looking for the vehicle. Um, and the guy, the killer, just seemed to have vanished. The car was just gone. Uh, they had a pretty good idea of the make of the car. So in all points, Bulletin went out. Uh, they eventually found a, a driver's license that they believed was that of the killer. It turned out that it wound up uh, being an alias. Uh, but they didn't know that at, t- at that time. So it took a while for them to unravel that. And they... The, the trail seemed to have gone cold, but it would heat up at different points. Um, but it really became, what this story became as I was uh, researching it, it, was a story of secrets. Of, um, in some ways, like shallow graves, although I didn't realize it at the time, you know, with shallow graves, uh, I never thought that someone could keep a a deadly secret like that for so many years, especially in a community that small. And it turns out that not only was there one secret, but there was two. You know, the the killer in this case was from the, the, was living in the greater New Bedford area. Uh, And no one uh, would would say where he was. At this point. It, it, so it became an, uh, a story of unraveling secrets. So at this point, they've discovered the body. They've uncovered this uh, alias ID. Yeah. Uh, we know it's 1980 and therefore, you know, technology, they don't have the Internet, can't pretty much do a quick database search on whether or not there's a, you know, Stanley, or I think that was the... Yeah, the, Stanley Portis was the name that, that was on the driver's license. Now, so that in 1980, now today, you're right, you'd just call it all up on the on the internet, they'd plug in the name, and all these aliases would come up. Um, but that's not how it was back then. No. They, they had to physically go to the uh, uh, motor vehicle offices in... At, uh, in at least two states to unravel who this person was. And they only discovered his real name, which is Donald Webb, uh, once an FBI agent got in touch with 
someone from the Massachusetts State Police. Wow. That's uh so so this Donald Webb. It... He he was he he was from he settled in Massachusetts, um, but he is from all over the place. Um he was a low-level mobster, a bank robber, yeah. burglar, uh, fencing material. Uh, he, there's, you know, stories of his fencing material in, in, uh, to the mob in, uh, in uh, Rhode Island, the Providence area. Oh, yeah, big but, mob. Yeah, big, very, very yeah. big mob area. Uh, but, you know, obviously he was not, you know, part of it. No. Uh, so he was just one of the hangers on trying to make money. And he was using his wife's um, dead husband's name as an alias. Wow. Yeah, so that's, that was another really sort of uh, Wrink- quirk. Wrinkle. Wrinkle uh, <laughs> and quirk that the, the police found was really interesting. And of course, his, his wife insisted she had absolutely no idea where he was. Oh yeah, right. And that's uh about secrets. It's so. about secrets and uh how you can keep them. And yeah. you know, and they were convinced that she had uh was uh knew where he was and was keeping that very, very large secret. And it was a secret that was kept for almost forty years. Wow. Now Back to, you know, Gregory. He was a father, right? Yeah, he had two small children. Uh, he'd worked in uh, the D.C. area after after he after college went down there, uh, but he's from you know small towns in. Uh, he wasn't originally from Saxonburg. He was from other communities, but, but he was much more comfortable in a small town setting, and he met his. Uh, soon-to-be wife on uh, on a bus when he was going back to work. He came up to visit his family and was taking the bus back to work. And she was heading down there uh, looking for work and to stay with uh, her sister for a bit while she looked. And they hit it off. And eventually she came back up here and he discovered he really did not like the big city lifestyle and working in um, in the area there. It really didn't, you know, suit him. So he came back up to uh, Pennsylvania, found a job at Saxon in Saxonburg as a police officer, took it, and eventually became uh, the police chief. He worked at the. Uh, in addition to being the police chief, he volunteered with the fire department. He did uh, officer training uh, work. He would visit his grandfather every Sunday for dinner with his family, he'd bring them out to his grandfather's house. Uh, he was very much a family man, uh, always did things by the book. He was uh, planning to go to law school and actually had enrolled in, in law school, but wound up withdrawing before he started because his, his wife was pregnant mm. and he wanted to focus his time and you know finances on on his family yeah he did everything and these two the two donald webb and greg adams could not have been more different you had donald webb with a long record long long criminal record you know i mean 
bad guy uh, to the nth degree. Uh, and I mean, he was the type of, Donald Webb was the type of person who would look up obituaries and then break into the houses with his little crew um, while people were at the wake or at the funeral. It's That's, almost like an urban legend that you hear about. Yeah. And, but, you know, back then, uh, some newspapers would actually print the street addresses of uh, people who had died in the obituaries, uh, you know, and eventually they stopped that. But Hindsight. Yeah. But in the 70s, they used to do that. I mean, I, it makes sense. Because if you want to send regards, you know, and I'm not saying that, you know, everybody that's reading somebody's newspaper or the address yeah. in the newspaper is a criminal by any stretch. It's just, you know, I've I've had my own experience with being in the newspaper and people. Yeah, weird things can happen when you're yeah. in the newspaper, but nonetheless. And, you know, that the whole Donald Webb being connected down now, you said he so was he connected with the you know, he wasn't involved with like the patriarcha family or anything like that but obviously he would sell them goods or he, he he was he would uh be on the outskirts of it if you will you know, gotcha one of those hanger honors um and all of his crimes interestingly uh were not in where he lived he and his crew would go outside of the area they would go to places like Pennsylvania. They would go to the Poconos. They would go to uh, New York. Uh, you know, they did one job in uh, Colony, New York, where they would go knocking on doors, uh, claiming that they were with the uh, city or the state, and they had to do a house inspection. And they, someone would, you know, divert the their uh, homeowner's attention, and someone else would rob them. I mean, these wow. were these type of conmen. They would rob. Um, jewelry stores, uh, posing as uh, salesmen to scout it out. Um, and they would go up and down the East Coast, you know, Florida, Delaware. Um, they'd be in Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, uh, parts of New Jersey, New York. You know, they would go all over the place. Makes me think of Henry Hill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, they were, uh, but they always... They didn't always get caught, but they got caught a lot in his crew. You know, they when you do when you do that much crime, you know, eventually the 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 it's going to catch up with you eventually. I yeah. mean, let's just play the cards. Yes, and they you know, so so they were they were shrewd, but they're obviously not that shrewd. They would get 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 caught because yeah, you know, you can only roll the dice so many times, and you can only count on henchmen to do so many. Exactly. things the right way yeah. <laughs> you're not so, the one in charge fully in yeah. charge then yeah. so, yeah so when, so when the chief was killed um webb was actually uh he skipped bail on another charge in new york so, so he, he was wanted yeah so he may have thought that the chief would you know that it was up however he's also clearly not all that bright because during that period of time, time in the early 80s, in a lot of communities, and they didn't have computers, and they didn't have computers in the, in the cruisers. So when they stopped a car, and when they would run the plate, and they would run the name, 
it would not necessarily show that someone was wanted. I mean, that was that was one of the major uh, problems, uh, particularly during the 80s, of people who were wanted slipping through the cracks because there wasn't a central database. So even if the chief had run his name, the name of Stanley Portis, it would not have necessarily come up that he was wanted. Yeah. So had he been going by Stanley? Like, was that his actual? No. Was okay. No. So he was just going by Donald Webb. He was Donald just Webb. His his he was just his his birth name was uh, uh, Donald Perkins, but he had gone by uh, Donald Webb because that was his his grandparents' name and his grandparents had raised him. So he right. he he eventually legally changed his name. I did see that he legally changed yeah. his name. I was wondering what the reason was behind yeah. that, but that explains that. Yeah. yeah so. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. So as far as um, the investigation went, you know, so they figure out, how long did it take them to figure out that it was Donald Webb, like time-wise? This happened in December, so. December, they knew, figured out by Christmas. It was early December that they, uh, that the chief was killed. And by Christmas, um, they, they knew who, exactly who they were looking for, and they had an arrest warrant for him in hand. By so, Christmas. so at Christmas time. They know this guy. They know his name. They do. They have uh, an ad, they have an address. I'm assuming. Yep. They go. They go to the wife's house. Knock, knock, knock. She says, "I don't know where he is." They keep on going back. Knock, knock, knock. I don't know where he is. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And they they keep watch on her for for years, uh, hoping that she would read them to her to him. Uh, she would take evasive uh, measures while they were following her. It was, uh, there, there's interesting stories uh, in the book about how she would, you know, evade uh, law enforcement. But Give she me was, one example. Uh, one time she was, was, there was one story that no one, people recount, but they don't necessarily know if it's all that true, that uh, she was in Vermont going on the highway. She was pulled over uh, and a state trooper pulled up to see if she had any car trouble. And she said, no, 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 and took off. And then afterwards, they believed that Donald may have been in the woods uh, relieving himself 
And there was a, a, another time where uh, a, someone from the uh, FBI was following her and, you know, she pulled off uh, very quickly uh, so that he wasn't able to, he'd have to double back. And she just waited in a parking lot until he came back because she didn't want to get him too mad. <laughs> cat and mouse. Yes, very much cat and mouse. And so basically they, okay, so they know it's him. Yeah, they know and it's him. so they surveil her because they feel like she's the closest thing to getting to him. Now, were there any sightings of him or anything along those lines? Like, I mean, he was a wanted man at this point. And, uh, you know, he said you said that he had obvious t- ties to criminal other criminals. Were there any other? Did people say, hey, we saw Donald Webb in Providence or anything like that? They did have one sighting in Fall River that they, the FBI did announce and were looking for information. Uh, but during that period of time, a lot of people had absolutely no information or did not even know about this case in the area where he was, uh, where he was from. Uh, the case got a lot of press in Pennsylvania, but locally there was not, there was hardly anything in the papers at that time. And, and we have to keep in mind, in, uh, in 1980, there was no internet uh, or no social media. So there was no, uh, there wasn't that instantaneous uh, uh, information out there for, for the public. They relied on a- newspapers. So there was, there was nothing. There was, you know, essentially nothing. Uh, I found a couple of very small little stories that were in the local papers, but that was it. And, you know, one, one had said that he was in, um, they, they believe he was sighted in, uh, in Fall River. There was some other sightings in Pennsylvania uh, where there was a crew that was doing some break-ins. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, reported sightings that where he was, you know, on a, on an island, uh, he was seen getting off of a plane. He was, you know, in Florida. He was in California. He was. I mean, they followed so many different leads, and um, in some of them, they believed that it was him. But in some cases, no. It just so it kind, of, kind of reminds me of Whitey Bulger. It, it yeah. really was very similar to the Whitey Bulger cases. A lot, a lot of similarities in the two cases. Uh, that you know, and, and eventually, uh, as a detail in the book, the uh, FBI agents who were involved in the Whitey Bulger case, the ones who eventually found Whitey, not the ones yep. who were involved uh, in the controversy involving Whitey. I, I uh, know one of them. <laughs> yeah, and yes, and he is absolutely wonderful. Yes, he is. Uh, they, Phil Torsney, shout out. Yes, yeah. Phil, Phil Torsney is an absolutely uh, wonderful, wonderful, very ethical, honest uh, uh, FBI agent. Uh, he and another agent by the name of Tommy McDonald, who also worked on the Bolger case. Uh, the two of uh, Phil had, when he came uh, came to the, this area, um, he started working on the doing some work on the. Uh, 
on the Donald Webb hunt. And, but then he had the forced retirement and he convinced Tommy uh, McDonald to, to take over the case. And, you know, the, the two of them were really instrumental, I think, in bringing this case to a close. Um, so you, your listeners will know, yes, there is actually an ending to this case, unlike Shallow Graves, which is very, you know, open-ended. There is an ending um, and it's a very satisfying ending, sort of. Um, but Phil was, Phil Torson was absolutely, um, really one of the driving forces in getting this, uh, reopened, uh, because he wound up convincing other people, um, to keep the work going. Um, so they were the two of them, along with Noreen Gleason, who is also, uh, in the Boston office, who had brought the two of them to Boston in the hunt for Whitey Bulger. Uh, they had all really worked to figure out how to best um, deal with the the Donald Webb case. Now, what was Donald Webb's wife's name again? Lillian. Did... Lillian. Lillian. Yes. Lillian. So Lillian is basically a social pariah, I'm assuming at this point, you know. Uh, no, no. Uh, no? No, no, no. Um, it's, uh, you know, as in all communities and she's from the area. She grew up in New Bedford. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of people knew her. Um, and some people, I believe probably felt sorry for her, you know, here she has been, you know, deserted by her husband who is, uh, you know, a bad boy, you know, and killed a police chief. Um, he put her in this position. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's empathy. Yeah, for by some people who don't who who weren't, weren't familiar with the full story, and and as you know, there's so much gray area in all stories and everyone's background. Life. Uh, yes, you know, uh, you know, Lillian was a, a young widow with a um, when she met uh, Donald Webb, she had a you know. A young child, um, and that was a period of time when you know, good jobs for women were not plentiful. Did you get a chance to interview the children of uh, Gregory Adams? I, I spoke with Ben, who was uh, the oldest child, okay. uh, not his youngest. Uh, I spoke to to Marion, um, his widow. Um, you know, both of the boys were very, very young. Um, the Greg Jr. was was an infant at the time, and uh, Ben was a toddler. Um, so Ben has just very hazy memories of his father. Um, and you know, I, I give uh, Marianne uh, Adams Jones, she's since remarried, uh, a lot of credit because she really tried to do the best she could with her boys um, and give them the best life possible uh, while still dealing with her own grief. You know, yeah. I mean, her I, entire life just sort of, you know, was upside down. Yeah. Flipped on a dime. Yes. Literally. And so did Greg's parents, were Greg's parents still alive at that time? Yeah. His parents were still alive. His, uh, 
you know, his sisters were uh, were alive. So the, the extended family was all all around there. Um, and, and people in, in town stepped in to and made all the arrangements for. Excuse me. Made, made the the funeral arrangements and even made sure that a Christmas tree was brought in for the for the kids for, uh, because she just yeah. couldn't deal with with all of that. There was just too many details while still deal, dealing with grief and also making sure that she protected the kids and kept them on you know the schedule that kids need. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what she was going through at that time, trying to balance grief, mourning, mad anger, uh, the holidays, uh, just. She's a very strong woman. Very, very strong woman. You know, it's a, I'm in awe of her. Such a strong, strong woman. So she's doing well. Yes. Yep. She's doing well. And, um, She's, you know, obviously retired now. She's sure. doing, doing very, very well. And grandmother, and just a, she's just a lovely woman. No, but now, how in? I know that you mentioned that you got interested in this case in 2017. What was it about his case that was so interesting? To you, um, you know the hunt for him, how he was found, um, how people can keep secrets. I think that is like the key: how people can keep secrets. It is just so um, confounding to me that some people could keep um, secrets that could hurt so many people. And that was, you know, both the case in the shallow graves, the New Bedford uh, serial killing. And in this case, uh, because the where the location of Donald Webb was kept secret all these years, it really was an open wound to the family. Uh, They never knew when the other shoe would drop, so to speak. Um, They never they never had justice. Because. They knew who the killer was, but he wasn't uh, paying the price for what he did. And, it, and it's, it's just astounding because it, it forced them every year to relive uh, what happened, particularly uh, the chief's wife. Every year, subconsciously, she would remember what happened right before Christmas yeah, that's right through just... you know the holidays. The holidays are marked by his death, and if Donald Webb had been located much sooner, I think her life there would still be the pain of loss, but she would know that one door was closed. Not that there's closure, because I don't think there's ever closure in any of these cases, but a door of the the criminal justice system at least would be closed where she would know he's here he's you know i may have to you know keep dealing with a parole board um he might may try to get a release but he's he's locked up right um he won't be living his life you know she would her her husband was 
she visited her husband at the cemetery while Donald Webb for years was out there and he was doing whatever he wanted. You know, he could be having steak dinners. He could, you know, go to movies. He could go, he could do things. Yes, he was wanted, but he was alive. Um, and he could come and go, maybe looking over his shoulder, but he still was able to live. And he yeah. was still a free man, a hunted man, but still a free man. So justice was never, ever done for the family. And that's what, and for the community, because the entire community was still grieving. They would talk about even after, in, in 2018, people were still talking about Greg Adams uh, and just talking about Greg and what he was like. Um, and, and it was almost in reverent terms when they would use his name. Uh, so they never, ever forgot. It's, yeah, it's a constant wound that yeah. they have to walk around with that literally they're living in mourning while this person is living in, you know, exile, but now also not being held accountable for the crime that he committed, which is pretty much the worst crime you can commit in U.S. criminal cases, the killing of a police officer. And I can only, I feel so bad for the kids and the family that had to navigate that type of atmosphere that was basically for the next few years or, well, you know, a number of years was a complete unknown. Yeah. And to think that like, it's all about secrets and to think people can keep these things to themselves. It's amazing. It's just, isn't it just amazing? The power of uh, it, it, the power of secrets. Yeah. It, it went, when I was, uh, way back when, before I went into teaching, uh, well, not that long ago, but I was uh, a, when I was a newspaper reporter and I was did primarily uh, cops and courts, crime. And I was always amazed. There was one particular city I was covering uh, where people would not give statements to the police. There was that really strong, no snitching um, culture. And it always shocked me really to the core that they could talk about, oh, we need to clean up our streets. Why the community people aren't doing enough to keep our streets safe when people in the community on those streets were not coming forward to say this person committed this murder or this person shot up this house. Uh, and I, I, that's always been abhorrent to me. And it, I was always just so shocked. Um, and we sometimes think that's a new phenomenon, the non-snitching culture, uh, but it has been going on for such a long time and has been, you know, immortalized in movies. And, you know, pe people think it's cool when they see mafia movies, you know, they, they're not telling, you know, they're not quote unquote snitching, they're not a rat. Um, but if you flip it to the other side, when people are committing vicious crimes and they don't aren't brought to justice 
the entire community suffers. And yeah. it's, you know, whether it's a murder, whether it's a shooting, whether it's a robbery, it's all part of that same ball of yarn that keeps on unraveling. Well, it's just the ripple effect. You think about you think about what happened when Donald Webb made the decision to kill Gregory Adams or the decision Gregory Adams made to pull over Donald Webb. I mean, it's a sliding doors theory, you know. I mean, what what life could have been like if he wouldn't have made that decision that day? Um, but the ripple effect of what did happen, you know, it affected his wife, his now widow, his children his future his kids his future grandchildren because that's always going to be stuck in their mind the community the fact that this guy is still out there and nobody knows where you know where he is at this point i, I just there are so many things about this case that it's just like you know when you drop a stone in the river and then just see that pattern go out it just takes out it's like a tsunami yes. in this of of the depression and anger and uh ang- i mean just the whole thing is just frustrating and it's all get out because all you have to do is just say you know over here <laughs> you know yeah. i know that's not a great visual for for the radio but you know what i mean it's yeah. just uh hey you can submit anonymously you can go to crime stoppers you can go and you don't even have to be a part of the case you just have to you know, open up your Pandora's box and just let them know what you know, because somebody knows. And I, you know, in, in all these cases, you know, the new Bedford case, there's somebody out there that knows a heck of a lot more than what there is out there. And again, with this case, you know, it, we, and what, what also made it kind of quirky in this case is that Donald Webb's stepson, at the time, was a New Bedford cop. Oh. Uh, he, you know, eventually left the department. There had been a little bit of a controversy over it, uh, but he eventually left the department. He uh, had told reporters that he left um, because, you know, he, he felt that it was unsafe for him to be there, and so he, so he quit. He didn't feel he was being backed up. Um, he's also under indictment. Um, for a massive gaming operation in uh, in Massachusetts, it's the largest gaming operation in the state. Um, so, the it's apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> well, um, I mean, I, technically, he's not his son, so I mean, yeah. I guess that's unfair. Oh, but he he had he had been uh, using some gaming uh, uh, gaming machines earlier uh, and had been charged earlier, but then it there was a loophole in the law uh, so that what he was doing much earlier really wasn't um, illegal. And since then they've changed the law. And I don't know whether he was aware that the law had, had changed um, and he may have thought that he was still doing it legally. That's up for that case is still pending. So that's up for the jury and his uh, and his defense attorneys and the prosecutors to figure out how that's going to play out. Yeah, that's in- that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's another massive, rip, you know, massive. another wrinkle in the in the yeah. case. <laughs> yeah, just you think it couldn't get any stranger. It, it 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 did. Yeah, I mean, we've talked 
Rhode Island mafia. We, you know, now we're talking Massachusetts gaming, you know, violations. It's just like, this is like a movie. It is. Um, it really is. You've got, yeah, you've got um, the mob, you have gaming, you have people who were involved in the Whitey Bulger hunt, you know, turning to, on the, to this case uh, to resolve it. Um, there's a lot of drama in it and a lot of very quirky stories as always when you're um, you know, talking to uh, investigators and they take you into their world and some of the things that they, that they did and saw, it's just absolutely fascinating. Now, before we started this interview, you had mentioned that this month is uh, what? What is this month again? Uh, Fallen police officers uh, uh, month. Uh, that's probably not the f- a formal title, but it's it's uh, May is a month where uh, all the f- uh, fallen police officers are honored. Um, I believe it's Fallen Police Officers Memorial Month, and there is also a special day designated also, but. Um, Throughout the month, uh, there have been a lot of postings on social media on, you know, fallen police officers and remembering uh, those that have been lost. So as far as when this book's available, when will readers actually be able to get their hands on it? They will be able to get their hands on it in June. Uh, There is a, right now there is a, a link up on Amazon for Kindle only for pre-order, but you can expect the pre-order on Amazon to be up uh, very, very shortly. I was talking to the publisher and that should be coming up shortly. Um, Let's face it, none of us ever do uh, pre-orders. We wait because you want it right away. (laughs) Um, So it will be, uh, be available for readers in the next couple of weeks. That is that is great. I'm I'm really looking forward to reading that. It's going to be uh, very, very interesting. Uh, now, do you have any final thoughts about the case and what readers should look forward to, or you um, know how they involved and follow you and all that good stuff? Because yeah, well, you have a social media presence. Yes, uh, you can find me on on Twitter on Maureen E Boyle One. Uh, and the reason why it's not Maureen Boyle is an odd little reason. I had my actual name on Twitter once upon a time and still there, but I couldn't remember the password and couldn't remember what email I used. And it's only recently that I finally found what email I used for that. But in the meantime, I have the other <laughs> other one. So if you find Maureen Boyle on Twitter, it'll say, you know, I can you can find her on uh Maureeny Boyle one. Um, I think it's Maureeny Boyle one. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Yes, and um, uh, my website is uh, MaureenBoyleWriter.com. Uh, Shallow Graves is uh, ShallowGravesTheBook.com. I have a uh, author's Facebook page uh, that you can follow me on, as well as a Facebook page for uh, the book, The Ghost, the the murder of um, Greg Adams and the hunt for his killer. So there's tons of stuff out there. I'm also on Instagram um, and some of the others. I am not on TikTok. 
I don't have <laughs> nearly enough uh, space on my phone to deal with TikTok. And I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. My students love it. I, I just, I, I, I'll just I, miss, say, I missed that boat. I missed yeah, that boat. Exactly. Is all I'll say. Yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. So, and you know, anyone can, can, uh, they can also uh, ask me questions on Goodreads. If they're, uh, if they're on Goodreads, uh, ask me anything about the book, about the case, about uh, shallow graves and the Bedford case, whatever they want about writing secrets yeah and in regards now this case people will find out with reading of the book where this case goes but in the case of shallow graves if anybody has information about that case should they just contact their local fbi office or oh, like 1-800 call fbi or is there a uh, that they should call the uh bristol county district attorney's office and um asked to speak to Anne-Marie Robertson. Uh, If they don't want to call the police directly, uh, they can only send me a message, um, you know, via Facebook or, um, or Twitter. And I'll get the message uh, to her. Okay, great. Great. Well, I think, I think this book sounds awesome. I will definitely be uh, picking it up and I hope everybody else does as well. And uh, thank you again, Maureen, for joining me on Who Killed. All right. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, it's always a pleasure talking with you and always a, pr- a pleasure listening to your shows. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this week's episode of Who Killed. And a big shout out to author Maureen Boyle for taking time out of her busy schedule to discuss her new book about the murder of Saxonburg, Pennsylvania Police Chief Greg Adams. The book is titled The Ghost, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. She also wrote another book called Shallow Graves, which can be found on Amazon.com. The Ghost will be available June 1st. Anyone with information regarding the New Bedford Highway killings you are asked to contact the Bristol County Police at 508-995-1311. All calls will be kept confidential. As you guys know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, and that's pretty much everywhere you get your podcasts. And as always, if you guys do enjoy this podcast, as well as my other shows, you could help support by clicking on the link in the show notes. Or you can also contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. And it's no joke. Every contribution, big or small, really does help keep these slow burn podcasts on the air. And you can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Again, those reviews help keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight. And again... If you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows that are coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. So thank you again to Maureen Boyle. Thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. Until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe.
The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.